We are going to continue in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible, would you get it out? If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in the seat in front of you. We're going to read from it, which is a good thing in a little bit here. But we've been in the book of Mark for a couple of months. It's actually been almost four months we've been looking at this section in the book of Mark. And one of the things that we've, a couple of the things we've acknowledged um, about the Gospels in general is that they are highly designed literary works. They're written by humans but inspired by God himself. And we said that they're not just anecdotal journal entries. They're not just a biography of Jesus. But they're these carefully laid out accounts of the good news designed to inspire transformation. And so uh, we're going to actually push pause on the book of Mark after today because next week we're starting a new series that we're really excited about called Transform. We're going to be talking about how we actually change as human beings, how that process works. But we're going to pick back up to finish the book of Mark in February, so stay tuned. But if you remember back to June, we entered into what we call this new sort of narrative section in the book of Mark. And if you remember, it was in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And he says, you're right. And now if you want to be my disciples, you have to deny yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. That was the beginning of this whole section. And over the past 15 weeks, we've been looking at these intense teachings of Jesus where it is all around the theme of the cost of the kingdom. And so we've been looking at it for 15 weeks, but if you can imagine, this happened in the course of three. And so the disciples are taking in these really, really transformative teachings, and their entire worldview is being changed. It would be absolutely overwhelming, I would imagine. But about 12 years ago, some friends uh, and I were invited to a wedding in Washington, and uh, it was a unique time in life because I was the only one of us married at that point. Um, it was a slow time at work. Monica was traveling, so we, we sort of had this, this opportunity in front of us. And we could take a plane, we could fly, we could go get a hotel, that, like the reasonable boring stuff. Um, but we decided to rent an RV and do a road trip instead. So it's the middle of winter, uh, and we decide to take a RV, none of us have ever driven an RV, up the coast of California through Oregon and into Washington. Super, super good idea. Um, I, so I could tell you all sorts of stories from this trip. I won't tell you all of them, but if you read the book of this whole story, you'd be like, this is fiction. This is not true. But so for example, I could tell you how we got to our first campsite in Tahoe and we're getting ready to go to bed and we look at the, the itinerary for the next day, the next like leg we need to get to the next campsite. And I, I could tell you about how basically all of Central Oregon was closed because I-5 was under 10 feet of water. And then I could say, well, you know, we did the reasonable thing. We drove to Reno. We just got on a plane. We flew to Washington. But we didn't do that. We said, we're going to push through. We'll just find another route. Which, coincidentally, I could tell you the story of how it took us over a mountain range in a blizzard, in the snow, in an RV that no one has ever driven before. And I could tell you how someone got car sick, and we convinced Cruise America to exchange our RV because it was disgusting. <laughs> I could tell you how we completely changed all of the places that we stayed at, like we parked in a Walmart one night. We parked in a friend's driveway another night. I could tell you how we were late to everything wedding-related because we were driving an RV in a town that should never have an RV in it. <laughs> and I could tell you the way that the story ended, which involved us driving all the way from Washington to San Jose in one, one thing, right? Everybody's getting cleaned up along the way while we're driving. I'm not sure if it was legal at that time or not, but everybody was showering, getting kind of cleaned up on the way home. And I could tell you how the tank, where all of the water drains, filled up and overflowed from the shower into the RV. And when we're in the middle of, Calif middle of nowhere, California, 
we think, as boys in their early 20s, the best thing to do would be to pull off the freeway and just let some water out, right? Just on the side of the road, it's fine. And I could tell you how the wrong plug was pulled. And it wasn't just water that came out. And I could tell you about the legendary conversation with the sheriff at the next stop off the freeway. And I could tell you about the ticket and all of these things that were involved in this trip. And you would be like, that, is, that didn't happen. But it did. The point is, like these are just a few of the like, very quick stories of this entire trip. And when we consider it over the course of four nights, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and that's, these are the kinds of, th uh, kinds of things I think about when I'm reading the Bible. Um, <clears throat> but what we've looked at over the past 15 weeks is so intense. It's so dense. And each week has been so significant. And when considered just a couple of chapters in the Bible, we could say this is so transformative. And if we put ourselves in the story of the disciples who are receiving this in a matter of 21 days, how overwhelming it must have felt for them. So in this section we've been in, there's been a pattern that's occurred a handful of times, and I feel like today is sort of a summary of that pattern. And so three things that Jesus is going to address in our passage. He's going he's to address who is the Messiah, who will the Messiah be. He's going to give a picture of the earthly kingdom, and then he's going to contrast it with a picture of the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to Mark chapter 12? We're going to start in verse 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And one of the tools, if you've gone through our biblical literacy course, one of the tools that we talk about is trying to place yourself in the story. And in the case of this story, one of the things we have to imagine is the longing, this undercurrent of longing that the people would have experienced. Longing in the sense of like this deep desire or a want, a wish. And what's interesting is the concept of longing is becoming lost in our culture. And there's many things that have contributed to this, but one of the things if you think about is, is sort of the idea of purchasing, right? So long ago, hundreds of years ago, if you needed something, you, like you needed some clothes, you would sew them together. If you needed food, you would either grow it, you would raise the animal, or you would trade for it. The Industrial Revolution comes along and goods become mass-produced, and you still have to walk to the store or eventually drive to the store, maybe even multiple stores to get what you needed. You would have to pay with cash or painstakingly write a check. Um, we won't go there. Um, if you didn't have the money, you had to save until you did. If you wanted to buy something, you had to save until you had the money to do it. 
Now, does anybody remember layaway? Yeah? Um, in some cases, you could take out a loan, but it would, meet, it would mean meeting with a banker face-to-face and convincing them that you were responsible enough to pay the money back. But then along came credit cards and the introduction of debt. And the whole premise of credit or, debit or debt is to eliminate the waiting that we would have to experience to fulfill the longing for the thing that we want. You can have it now, but pay for it later. And then compounding on this effect is the whole idea of one-click purchasing, subscribe and save, where you don't even have to think about it. It just shows up at your door and your bank account is a little bit less. So would you be surprised if I told you that the total credit card debt held by Americans as of this last quarter, this doesn't involve mortgages, car loans, retail credit, would you be surprised if I told you it was $1.03 trillion? Because generally speaking, we struggle with waiting. And this, e this economic model is just one example that has contribute, contributed to that reality. It's changed our longings and desires and even our concept of happiness because happiness has been at least partially defined by the stuff that we own or the things that we do. And so let's think a little bit more about longing for a second. Maybe you've longed to hear back from that college that you applied for. You're just waiting for the email to see if you got in. Maybe you were out of work at some point, or you're out of work now, and you're waiting for that call back for the interview, just waiting to know when God's going to provide the right job. Or maybe you've experienced the pain of a broken relationship and just waiting to know, God, when will you restore that relationship? Maybe you've longed to be in a relationship and, went, and wondered when God was going to bring that right person. Maybe you've longed for a growing family, but it just didn't or isn't happening the way that you thought. And you're wondering when God is going to come through. The longings in each of these situations are good. They're good things to be longing for, but the feeling of longing is uncomfortable. It's awful. Longing rarely feels good. And I think in the time that we're living in, we've been conditioned to avoid those feelings and maybe even conditioned out of the ability to long for those or, or to handle those feelings. And so stick with me for a minute because if we're going to place ourselves in the story of Mark, we have to wrestle with this discomfort. And so imagine with me, any one of those scenarios, the feelings of any one of those scenarios, imagine that every single person in this room has that same feeling. Their parents had that feeling. Their parents had that feeling. And their parents and their parents and their parents all lived with that feeling their entire lives. And so the people that Jesus is teaching, they've been longing for the Messiah to deliver them and to rescue them, and they've longed so intensely that it's shaped everything about who they are. And it's only been intensifying and so to complicate the situation, the teachers of the law that Jesus is talking about, the Pharisees in this situation, the scribes, they longed for the Messiah at least, if not more so, than anybody else did. They were the ones kind of championing this campaign to, to help him come, to make a way for him to come. But their longing was misguided. This doesn't mean that they were idiots. They knew their Bibles. That, like, their literal job was to know the Bible so well that they could teach it. And so if we look at a few passages, we can see why they, why they may have this idea. Second Samuel, Samuel's prophesying to David, the king. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, your rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. 
and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. David writing, anointed by the Spirit of God in Psalm 2. It's a, it's a prophetic vision, but it's considered one of the messianic psalms. He says, he said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me, I will make the nations your inheritance. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces. Another one, Psalm 89. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The expectation for a king to come as royalty is not crazy. The idea that, the, that he was going to come and conquer the earthly kingdoms is not out of the realm of possibility, but their longing in that was misguided. And so you can imagine the Pharisees' confusion and even their outrage when the man sitting in front of them claiming to be this Messiah they've been waiting for is a homeless guy claiming to be God. But because their longing was misguided, they missed the very thing they had devoted their entire lives to. They had dedicated themselves to creating a way for the Messiah to come. And the way they thought that that was going to happen was for all of Jews to follow the law of Moses perfectly. 613 laws. They were, if they followed them perfectly, then the Messiah would come. But on top of that, they added their own traditions. 1,500 rules and laws and regulations that they enforced with vengeance and punishment and shame and guilt. There's no other word to, to, to really explain and describe what they were doing than oppressive. So as if that wasn't enough, their misguided longing caused them to become pompous and pretentious and downright greedy. They expected a king. Kings are royal, they're wealthy, they're important, they're powerful, and who do kings surround themselves with? Royal, wealthy, important, powerful people. And so it seems to me that these guys, out of their misguided longing, grab, grasped for authority, they grasped for power, they grasped for wealth to try and prepare themselves to be worthy to be in the presence of the king that they thought was coming. But because it was misguided, it turned into the antithesis of the very kingdom of the king they were preparing for. And so this is the risk of misguided longings. They cause us to doubt what's right in front of us. This isn't what I expected, so this can't be right. We do this with all sorts of things, right? We do this with parent. I, I do this with parenting. We set expectations on our kids, and we miss the reality of parenting them through life. We do this with relationships where we put expectations on a person and we miss the joy of the relationship because it's not fulfilling what we thought it was going to be. One more thing to add context, but if we were to do an overview of the Old Testament, we would see that the way of God, which informs the kingdom of God, could be really summarized by two words. It's the word righteousness, which is I like this definition, kind of, but um, that all relationships are right between people and God and people and people, okay? And the second word is justice, that everyone is treated equitably with equal fairness. And so if we did this overview, we'd see what gets God angry throughout the Old Testament. It was when people break those things down, when they, when they, relationships aren't right, when they're mistreating people, and most importantly, when they forsake their worship of God for worship of idols, this is why Jesus would go on to say, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They devour widow, widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Flowing robes, these are symbols of authorities. The, these pastors are walking around trying to look like Roman politicians. Right? The important seats, they, this is saying they want to be seen, they want to be revered, they want to be worshipped. 
devour widows' houses. In all likelihood, what's happening here is these, these women who have no other way to provide for themselves, they're selling their homes to provide for their basic needs, and in their faithfulness, obedience, and love, and trust, they're still giving to the temple because that's what is required of them for the Messiah to come. That's what the Pharisees are doing. And then these guys are taking that money and buying back their houses for their own social status. Jesus is laying out what these guys are doing is the epitome of injustice. It is the antithesis of everything that he's trying to bring. And not only is it injustice, it's straight up disobedience. If you look at the Old Testament, the entire book of Ruth highlights God's intention for caring for widows. He feels so strongly about it, God does, that the Mosaic law spells it out in Exodus 22. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, the, the, if you do they cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. That is intense. God really, really cares about this. And hence why Jesus says these men will be punished severely. So all of this, all of this is the context that the people listening to Jesus have in their mind. It's a mixture of intense, intense longing and an overwhelming oppression from Rome, which we didn't even talk about. But worse, they're like spiritual advisors, they're pastors, they're priests. And so Jesus says something that makes the people amazed. The ESV translation says they listened to him gladly. So he says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 110. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, so far in this story, Jesus has kind of been beating around the bush around the whole, about the whole Messiah thing, right? But here he's saying, I'm the Messiah. He's using a riddle, but the people who know their Bibles, they listen to him gladly because they know this is a messianic prophecy, and Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling it. So imagine everyone in the room. Think back to those feelings of longings, right? Whether it's the college acceptance letter, everybody's feeling that, and Jesus comes and says, I know you didn't apply to the school because you didn't think you could get in. You're in. Or imagine everyone in the room is, is longing for a restored relationship. Jesus says, I know you wanted to restore that one relationship. I'm going to restore your entire family. Or imagine everyone in the room has been longing for a spouse. Jesus says, I know you're looking for this certain guy or gal. I'm going to exceed your dreams. Or imagine everybody's been longing for this growing family. And Jesus says, I know you thought your family was look like, would look like this, but I'm going to give you something better than you ever imagined. The excitement of the people the gladness of the people would be immeasurable. Because everyone knew that the Messiah was coming in the line of David. David, who wrote Psalm 110 a thousand years earlier by the power of the Holy Spirit, knew that the Messiah would be his son, a king, and his Lord. It would be unthinkable, though, in an ancestral cultural culture like David is writing in, for the patriarch of that family to say, I'm going to give my son a superior position over me. The patriarch always had the highest spot, unless the descendant was more than human, which probably didn't happen very often, right? So Jesus can only be David's son and his Lord if he's also God's son. And this is what Jesus is saying by quoting Psalm 110. He's teaching in the temple where the Pharisees and the scribes think they have the authority, that he is in fact the Messiah, not only with the authority of God, but the very embodiment of God. Are you with me? Is this making sense? 
This is incredible news to the people who are receiving it, and it should be incredible news to us today. The story goes on, and Jesus begins contrasting sort of the rich people who are coming in, and they're giving big gifts. And then this woman, not uncoincidentally a widow, who quietly puts in a small gift. It's two copper coins. This is less than a penny. It's nothing. And it's kind of weird that, the section, that this section ends like this. Like, what, how does Jesus' proclamation of him being Messiah, his warning about the Pharisees and this story of a widow, a woman who at that time would be considered the least powerful in all of society, no authority, no influence, no wealth, not even a family line to depend on, why does it end like this? Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And the widow, though she seemingly gave a small amount, she gave everything. And there's no English translation to really capture the depth of Jesus' words here that's captured in the original language, but he's saying she literally gave her life away. Does that sound familiar? He's pointing to this widow not because she's a widow, but, but because she's doing the very thing that he came to do. Jesus, who was David's Lord, became David's son, which in and of itself seems like giving enough. But he would go above and beyond and would give everything, his very life. And so Jesus is using the widow as sort of a prototype or a model of what it looks like to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. Now, it's no coincidence that in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus confronted a different group of people, the Sadducees, in their argument about a widow. And then in this passage, by honoring the widow, he's confronting another group of people, the Pharisees. And the reason this is here, I think, is because Mark is showing us that Jesus is opposing both sides of the political spectrum. See, the Sadducees are on one side. They're idealists. They deny the reality of the mystical or the supernatural they're Greek in their thinking, which would mean that they're looking for a watertight argument based on reason and logic. And then on the other side, you've got the Pharisees. They're dogmatic. They're following and enforcing the rules, hoping that God will notice them and save them. And the only way to change their thinking is to see a miracle. And in con confronting both of them, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God does not fit into earthly political categories. Sadducees, in your posturing to show what you know, you missed the point of caring for the widow who's experienced a deep trauma of losing husband after husband after husband. Pharisees, in your exuberance to follow the rules, you drifted into pompous authoritarian jerks who are opposed to the very, or oppressing the very person that the rules were intended to protect. Y'all are missing the point. Everybody's missing it, right? Jesus is trying to make it abundantly clear that his kingdom is not like earthly kingdom. It does not fit into a political ideology. And he's been trying to show them this over and over again. Back in Mark 10, he uses children as an example. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he wasn't kidding in Mark 10 when he said, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Because in the kingdom of God, strength and honor is sacrifice, power and prestige is humility. The symbol of the kingdom wasn't a Roman flag, it wasn't a Jewish flag, it's a cross. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not sure that I approach the world much differently than the worldview or the way of thinking that the Sadducees or the Pharisees did. 
The Sadducees would say, I determine my own truth. I set my own path. I set my own way. The Pharisees would say, I'm going to obey God's rule so that he loves me and will give me what I want. But do you see what they both have in common? They're both clinging to control. That longing for control led them to places I'm not sure they have ever intended to be, but they started from misguided longings and led them to control. It caused them to be prideful, rigid, greedy, and demanding. And when that control got pushed up against, they became fearful, anxious, bitter, and angry. And so what Jesus is inviting them and us into is to let go of that control, to let go of the need for control, to let go of the fear of releasing that control, and to accept the reality and freedom that comes when we put him in control. And when we're willing to accept that Jesus, literally God, the creator of the universe, who came in human form, went through the darkest possible experience for us to extend an invitation to live differently, it should shape everything about who we are. Just like the longing for the Messiah shaped the Jewish people, the Israelites, the good news of the Messiah hanging on a cross and rising again should shape everything for us. I think we probably all know that the longings the world promotes, they don't really bring fulfillment. And I think the, what Jesus is offering in the kingdom is a way out of that trap. So what about the longings for good things? The kingdom things, restoration, new life, those growth things. In the pain and anguish of that waiting, those, those yucky feelings that we carry in the midst of that longing, the king who gave up his life invites you to cast your cares upon him. David writes in Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love Eugene Peterson's interpretation of Jesus' words. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? You burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This doesn't always mean that our, in our longings we'll get what we want, the way we want it, when we want it, all of those things. But resting our hope on a king who gave his very life for us. Seeing Jesus, God in human flesh, hanging, humiliated, betrayed, and suffering on a cross creates a confidence that even in the waiting, even in the darkest moments, even in discouragement, that he's with you. And when we live in the way of the widow, denying ourselves, giving our longings to him and trust him that he has something for us, there's a freedom in that. It's a freedom from the control of making it happen on our own. Paul calls it the peace of God which transcends all understanding. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lastly, the ultimate hope comes from the fact that Jesus acknowledges, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus brought his kingdom, and he promised one day to fully usher in his kingdom. We're going to look at that when we return to Mark in the new year. But right now we're living in this partially inaugurated kingdom. But he promises that when he returns, he will restore the perfection of the garden. The garden from Genesis 1, where God proclaims it's good. 
where the connection with God and the intimacy with God is perfect, where the connection with other people is perfect, where the elimination of the very need for the concept of justice is taken away because righteousness is fully restored. All of that is in store for those who follow Jesus. Everything made right, everything restored, every longing will be perfectly and completely fulfilled. This is the hope of the kingdom, and this is the hope that we're invited into. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you gave it to us to show us what you are like, to show us what we can be like, what we should be like. And Father, I just pray now that as we think about these words, that you would speak to us each individually, speak to the longings of our heart, speak to those things that are our heart. Would you minister to us now?